So we're recording this special episode today because this Tuesday, March 16th, there was a shooting in Atlanta, Georgia. It left eight people dead, including six Asian women. And this is actually just one of many, many violent hate crimes against people of Asian descent in the U.S. Um, They've been steadily increasing, quite frankly, um, especially since the beginning of the COVID pandemic a year ago. And more even. Yeah. I would say because of the reports that were coming in before even the cases. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, we want to send a message of solidarity love and support for our Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander friends, colleagues and students. Quite frankly, however, this episode is not for you. We know that you don't need to learn more about anti-Asian racism because you live it every day. You are, of course, welcome to listen, um, but our intended audience is our non-Asian and particularly white listeners. Yeah. And Mel, you're a white lady, right? That's correct. Yes, I am. Yeah. And I'm a white and Mexican lady. But, you know, we really care deeply about issues of anti-Asian racism, despite the fact that we're not Asian, we're not part of the Asian community. And really, you know, what we were thinking today is we want to convince you, right, like our listeners and especially our white listeners, right, that you should care too. And and not only should you care, but it's your responsibility to be able to address it. Yeah. And we should note that this assumes that you are already empathetic and that you care about other people. And we have to say it really shouldn't be a question of whether or not Asian or Asian American and Pacific Islander people deserve sympathy. I mean, all human beings have a right to live without fear of racism and violence. Right. Absolutely. That is no question at all. But but we also know that there are likely, you know, some of you that maybe aren't convinced that it's an issue, you know, especially for white people to be concerned with that it's not their issue. Um, and if you listen to our podcast, right, you probably like East Asian pop culture, you know, you're listening now, but, you know, maybe you still think this isn't my problem because I'm not Asian, right? Yeah. So, Today, we're here to tell all of you that this is your problem, this is my problem, um, this is our problem, and that being empathetic really isn't enough. Um, You also need to understand the history of anti-Asian racism and whiteness in the United States. Yeah, so we're going to share a little bit today of that larger history, you know, because we're historians and and also some personal history. Um, And we're going to start, I think, with why, as, you know, historians of China, you know, we're not historians of the U.S., but why we believe it's important to teach about the history of anti-Asian racism um, in the U.S. context, in a global context. For China historians, It's especially important to recognize and engage with the history of anti-Asian racism. Seeking out knowledge of the history of China is not enough if you aren't willing to recognize the humanity of Chinese people and all people of Asian descent. The history of revolutionary China is deeply entwined with the history of white supremacy and racism in the U.S. 
yeah, we really focus on that period, modern China, revolutionary China, and and both countries, um, China, the U.S., they're tied together in so many numerous ways, right, historically, um, and not only through those historical processes, you know, but also through, you know, physical historical documents and these really important, um, you know, legal decisions, and especially and very famously, I think, things like the set of Chinese exclusion laws that ranged from, you know, um, 1882, so the late 1880s to all the way to the 1940s, you know, and and that these laws, these acts, they barred Chinese immigration specifically, right, and and exclusively. Yes. And we also have to recognize not only the history of anti-Asian racism and exclusion laws and all of these kinds of things within the United States, but we also have to think about what has been going on globally um, and especially thinking about the history of U.S. military engagement in Asia and the history of U.S. military bases in Asia since World War II. Yeah. And so one of the questions, right, that we really need to think about um, with this particular massacre, right, in Atlanta is, you know, when this man decided to kill women that he perceived to be sexually available and as, quote, a sexual temptation, why did he target Asian American women? That's not a coincidence, no. right? That is not a coincidence. It is part of a longer history of hypersexualization of Asian women and their perceived sexual availability, particularly to white men. Yes. Throughout the United States wars in Asia during the 20th century, including World War II and the post-war American occupation of Japan, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, which is, of course, a misnomer because it extended into Laos and Cambodia. Throughout all of these conflicts and even into the present, because the United States continues to maintain military bases in Asia, including in the Philippines, South Korea and Japan, American men often expected girls and women in these communities to be sexually available. And the sexual assault of girls and women was and is sadly common. There have been many highly publicized accounts of rape in Okinawa in particular, where most of the U.S. military bases in Japan are located. Yeah, that's right. So this this kind of limited set of choices, I think that's really important to to highlight that. Um, and, you know, strikingly, I think, thinking about this this long history of anti-Asian racism is also the fact that that people of Asian descent really couldn't become U.S. citizens until 1952, yeah. right, under the McCarran-Walter Which Act, is 1952. so recent. I mean, 19, 1952. And I think we really need to remember that. I mean, I think about within my own family, my grandparents were all in either their teens or their 20s in 1952. That's even in the lifetime of both of my partner's parents. And I know that you, Steph, have been thinking a lot about how recent all of this history is and how much of it occurred in your grandfather's life. Yeah, so 1952, right? That's like, so that's like 69 years ago. Um, in 1952, my maternal grandfather was 22 years old. Um, I think he himself had just gotten out of the army. You know, he graduated high school several years earlier. Um, and that's in our hometown of Winnemucca, Nevada. And so, you know, I've done some reading on the history of our hometown. Um, and 
I know that there was this kind of thriving Chinatown and there were working class Chinese Americans, especially in the mining and railroad industries. Um, and in fact, you know, it, it, this should just impress upon you, like how big the Chinatown was. Dr. Sun Yat-sen, right, the father of the Chinese Revolution of 1911, he visited my hometown, right, to fundraise. Like it was a big community of um, Chinese Americans. Um, and I know that there, you know, like I said, there was a community, there was a cemetery, there were businesses, there was a Joss house, which is, you know, a term for like both a house of worship, but also a place for community gatherings, right? It was a thriving community. Yeah. Have you ever talked to your grandfather about this? Yeah, actually, I have. So since becoming a historian, I've done some oral histories with him. Um, and he and I think especially because I, you know, study the history of China, we we do end up talking a lot um, about kind of the connections right between China and the US. And, and for him, you know, he he very vividly remembers some of his classmates um, who were Chinese American. And um, he had one classmate, one friend that, um, you know, shared with him that his family, um, he believed, um, this is what my grandfather recalled, had fled China in the 1930s. And, and he seemed to remember, and from what we know, right, this would make sense, um, that it was due to Japanese invasion and occupation. Um, and one thing that really struck me about that is that and that my grandfather talked about a lot, too, is that, well, first of all, you know, he lost touch with that classmate and has no idea what happened to them. They don't live, as far as he knows, in our hometown anymore. And um, the other thing that he talks about a lot is that Chinatown was basically torn down and that especially like the house, house of worship, the Joss house was torn down. Do you know why the Chinatown disappeared? No, Um and I, I think about that a lot. So like I said, you know, since becoming a historian, I, I have read other historians research um, about either like Chinese American experience in Nevada and the West or, or even specifically in my hometown or kind of neighboring towns. And, um, you know, I guess one of my best educated guesses about why it disappeared, I'm sure that there are other political economic factors, but I know that Chinese Americans were essentially not welcomed in my hometown, right? Research, you know, shows that there were these kind of, um, you know, local writings that were really concerned, especially about, you know, Chinese men, um, because most of, you know, we know that most of the Chinese um, immigrants to the U.S. were men because of these kind of exclusionary um, laws. Um, and, and they were treated like they were all opium addicts, right? That was how they were written about. There were these concerns about Chinese American men that were, you know, mingling with white residents and fears over them mingling with white women, especially. Um, and another thing that, you know, is some uh, kind of story that I grew up with was this idea that there were um, tunnels underneath the downtown area that Chinese Americans had um, built so that they could walk, you know, to to and from places without being harassed on the street. Wow. And I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've heard that about other cities. The thing is, I haven't found any historical research that backs that up. But like, it still seems like a really important story that gets passed down. Yeah, it, it reflects a kind of exactly it reflects a kind of history or memory, right? Where you know, clearly that's mapping onto something real in that Chinese Americans lived in their own communities and that white residents of my hometown like really threatened them with violence. You know, it's like at best kind of like hostility and unwelcoming at worst, you know, violence. And and so, 
you know, overstepping those racial boundaries, right, is is clearly part of that uh, really tense and potentially violent dynamic. Um, so, so that's a long way to say, I don't know why exactly it disappeared. My grandpa doesn't seem to know why either, right? But our community was not welcoming. They were not welcoming to Chinese Americans. And I can't help but feel, you know, this, this perception of them is these kind of perpetual and dangerous outsiders. I mean, there's no way that it's not a factor, right, in that vibrant community disappearing. Yes, yes. And there are so many material effects as a result of that. Right. So, yeah, that's another thing that I think about a lot, too, right, is that, you know, my grandfather who was, he was born in Winnemucca and he stayed there. Um, and so unlike his Chinese American classmates who presumably moved away, who weren't able to stay, you know, he stayed there. Um, and that's where I was born, right? To his stepdaughter, my mother, to, you know, and my dad, who was an immigrant from Mexico and an agricultural worker, you know, and all of us, right? Our family, largely to my knowledge, you know, didn't directly work, say, in the railroad and mining industries that Chinese Americans built and that they worked in. But my family and our community, right? Didn't we benefit? from that, from the labor of Chinese Americans that helped to build our community. Our community grew, you know, it swelled, it developed um, because of their labor. You know, they really brought real material wealth to our community. And that material wealth, that social capital that comes with like being able to stay in a place like across generations and have roots there and social networks, you know, that's something that our family we got that passed down to us, right? We we inherited that. Um, but the Chinese Americans in our community didn't, right? They, for, for reasons that obviously are still a little unknown to me, but they were forced to leave it behind. And I can imagine that they left behind homes and businesses and roots and histories, right? I mean, I don't know. Like, I did you, did you learn anything about, Chinese American history, you know, like growing up in the U.S. and in the U.S. school system, did you learn anything about that? No, not to my recollection. Not in history classes, not in United States history. I don't actually remember reading any Chinese American literature. Or honestly, I mean, we're talking about the Chinese American context because it's really relevant to your personal, like, you know, hometown's history and also our professions. But I don't remember learning any really uh, Asian American history beyond, of course, the ways that it was relevant to a study of World War II. So, you know, the internment of Japanese Americans is, I think, to my recollection, the extent of the Asian American history that I learned in the K-12 system. Yeah, which I could be misremembering a little, but I suspect not much. Yeah, I mean, likewise, right? I could totally, you know, I'm not a I'm not a perfect person in terms of remembering my childhood uh, education topics, but I also, yeah, don't remember that and really don't remember, you know, in my case, and, and, you know, in especially growing up in the West to not have learned that when they're clearly such an integral part of our community. I mean, yeah. And, you know, for us, you know, I'm just thinking about us now, you know, we have spent years and years studying the history of Asia. And, you know, 
I can't help but think like, is that the requirement to learn more and care about these issues? You know, I just feel like that cannot be true. Yeah. I mean, that much formal education, most people cannot put that kind of time and energy into this topic. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so that's something that we've talked about, right? So, you know, so we both agree, I think, that that is not a a requirement, right, or a prerequisite for learning and especially for caring about these issues. And so, like, you know, in sharing a little bit about what I have learned about the community that I grew up in, you know, one of the things that we're thinking is, you know, that's one way to kind of start this process and think about, um, you know, the the ways in which anti-Asian racism is so pervasive in our society and in our history, right? And paying attention to your own community, to your family's history, and and to to really cultivate that sen- sense of empathy and and really try to better understand your own context because I think you will find connections um, and gaps yeah. and paying attention to the gaps, yeah. like you were saying about the oh from at least the perspective of some of the white community members, the Chinese Americans and Chinese American community just sort of quote unquote disappeared. And the reasons aren't clear, aren't really publicly widely known what happened. That's a gap that I think is the kind of thing that we should all pay more attention to when we hear about that kind of process or event. Yeah, that is such a good point. The the gaps in our knowledge. I mean, exactly, because, you know, for me, um, learning about the history of anti-Asian racism and in, you know, in my community that I grew up when grew up in and, and my personal attempt, right, to understand, you know, how that history, you know, ties into my own complicity in anti-Asian racism or, or in lack of knowledge, like you said, gaps, right? Um, that can serve as a start of a conversation, and why it is absolutely crucial. I mean, it is just, you know, required that we all care about this issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can totally appreciate and love and take joy from these pop culture products from East Asia that are the focus of our podcast. Um, But we can't just do that. We also have a responsibility to become invested in the well-being and humanity of and justice for the global Asian community. That's right. And and so, you know, when we were thinking about what to say, how to respond, you know, to this particularly horrific but not unique, right, event of anti-Asian violence that, you know, culminated in in femicide, right? Um, you know, I think that in that in in that spirit of wanting to to speak to that and to speak to this issue of anti Asian Asian racism, you know, I think we want to say really and emphatically and loudly, you know, some definitive truths that we believe, especially white people, really really need to hear. Yes, exactly. So first, we want to say that anti Asian racism absolutely exists in the United States and has had a long and violent history that informs our current moment. That's right. And and the next thing that we would want to say, you know, is that that people of Asian descent in the US are treated like they're perpetual outsiders. Um, that their pain and their trauma are not legitimate or worthy of note or 
that they are, quote, model minorities that don't experience racialized violence or that it's not, you know, important. And finally, we want to say that it is the collective responsibility of white Americans to acknowledge and confront anti-Asian racism. We benefit from the white supremacist structures that have marginalized and terrorized people of Asian descent across the globe and within the United States itself. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's the note that we really want to end on these really, you know, just saying aloud those truths Mm -hmm. and reasserting them. Um, so, you know, we want to thank everyone for, for listening to this special episode today. We will post a list of resources on the website. Yeah. Yeah. And we hope to hear from you and continue this conversation.